Would you pray with me? We are so dependent on you, Father, even to open your word and to understand it. Please illumine our minds and our hearts by your spirit and take your word and change, transform us by the power of your word. So Holy Spirit, have full reign in this place right now. We, play, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's remind ourselves what we're doing here, kind of review a little bit. We are studying the book of Romans. We're at the end of chapter 3 this morning, and the book of Romans is all about the gospel. It is all about the good news that Jesus is Lord. And after, in the early chapters, Paul introducing himself, and the occasion upon which he wrote it is he's a missionary, and he wanted to go from his home base, which was in Antioch, and he wanted to take the gospel as far west as Spain, and he wanted Rome to kind of be his new home church. So he was sending a letter, a treatise, basically the letter to the Romans, to the church in the center of the empire, kind of the hub church of the empire, to basically say, this is what I'm all about. And what is he all about? He is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that there is a righteousness coming down from heaven, provided as a gift for God's wayward people. So it's all about the covenant faithfulness of God and God bringing together a family made up of both Jewish people and Gentile people who put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. And after in the early chapters, basically from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, where he pretty much said to everyone, you're all in the same boat. Level the playing field. You're all under sin and under the wrath of God. The next section, which basically begins with chapter 3, verse 21, and will run through the end of chapter 4, is all about God's solution to the sin problem, which is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's what we are in the middle of. We are closing out chapter 3 this morning. And so I would like to read... Romans chapter 3, if you have Bibles, feel free to turn in them, or your favorite devices, whether it's Android or iPhone or whatever it might be. And I'd like, see, I'm going to get you to multitask. And if you're able, I'd like to ask you to stand. We are reading the Word of God. And I'm going to read for us Romans chapter 3, verses 27 to 31. He says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Paul has just finished, pretty much in verses 21 through 26, describing the great doctrine known as justification by faith. The doctrine that says, if you remember our law court scene that we ended last week, and if you weren't here, I'm going to tell you what it was. So don't worry, you're going to be brought up to speed. We're brought into a law court. God is the judge. We're the defendant. And Jesus is our defense attorney. And the judge, God, will make a verdict. See, justification is a legal term with relational implications. 
It's a legal term that God will make a verdict. And now, what does the judge, who's basing his verdict on justice, make his verdict based on? He makes it based on evidence. So the prosecuting attorney comes through, and he has all this evidence of what? Our lives. Does it look good? What do you think? Our yuck, our sin, our wrong thoughts, actions, words, everything that we've done, and everything that we should have done and didn't do. But we have a defense attorney, an advocate, who will speak to the judge on our behalf so that the judge will make the verdict based on the advocate, the defense attorney, who's Jesus Christ. And he presents evidence, the evidence of his sacrificial death and his perfect life, his righteousness. And so the judge, and here's your definition of justification by faith. It is a verdict, a declaration by God based on the sure and perfect evidence of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ and his perfect life, that you are declared not guilty, forgiven, and righteous because of the evidence of the righteousness of Christ. So totally as a gift. And so Paul, in verses 21 through 26, is basically explaining this. Now a righteousness from God is revealed from heaven. It comes down to earth from heaven, and it's given to you as a gift. And so now he's answering in verses 27 to 31, closing out this particular section, this particular chapter, answering in kind of rapid-fire order, in rapid-fire fashion, various questions that can be raised in objection to this doctrine. Like, then what becomes of our boasting? What becomes of the law? When I was a little kid, I remember, and I was not quite seven years old, you know how I love sports. I remember my very first sporting event that I saw on TV. You know what it was? It was 1969, I was six years old, not quite turned seven. It was Super Bowl III. Now, if you don't know much about Super Bowl III, that's okay, sit tight, I'm gonna tell you. Super Bowl III was played between the New York Jets and the Baltimore Colts. And that Super Bowl was famous for this brash, arrogant, braggadocious youngster who went to the University of Alabama and then played for the New York Jets. His name was Joe Willie Namath. And Joe Willie Namath boasted that they would win the Super Bowl. And you know what they did? They won the Super Bowl, 16 to 7. And he became famous. Or another illustration, there was one of our most famous boxers. His name was Cassius Clay, and then he turned it to, to Muhammad Ali. And what did he go around saying? I am the greatest. I float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. And what did he go out and do? He went out and backed it up and winning, becoming probably the greatest or one of the greatest boxers of all time. Now, what did Joe Namath and Muhammad Ali have in common? They could back up their boasting. They did what they bragged about. They performed and they knew it, so they would boast. Do you want to know what Romans chapters 1 to 3 that we looked at, 118 to 320 is? You can't back up your boast. You're under sin. The wrath of God is revealed against your unrighteousness. And whether you are a religious Jewish person that was given the gift of the law, the gift of Torah, as your identity, 
your boundary marker, that which was given you as a gift that you were called to, get, to keep, or you were a Gentile, an irreligious, immoral, and you just ignored God, it doesn't matter, you're in the same boat. So even though we like to boast, the difference is whether you can back up your boast or not back up your boast. And friends, none of us can back up our boast. And so what does Paul say? In these verses, he's taught us that a right standing before God, a right status with God, is completely given as a gift. It's a gift of God solely based on the performance, on the death, on the life of another, the Messiah Jesus. And so now in these verses that close out chapter 3, in this kind of stream of thought, Paul is dealing with these rapid-fire questions which are resulting from these previous verses. Basically answering, if righteousness is a gift, that is, we can't go out and win the game of life, or go out and knock out our opponent, or win the Super Bowl on our own, what do we have to boast about? What happens to our boasting which we think of boasting as just bragging, but boasting is what happens to what system we're basing our life upon. What happens to our basing our life on our, we made it on our own, we did it ourselves. We've earned it, we've achieved it. And the answer to that is it's excluded. It's eliminated. It's completely ruled out. So these verses, the end, at the end of chapter 3, are dealing with the question of what are some of the implications of the fact that righteousness is given to us as a gift, that we're justified, as he says in verse 28, for we hold, we know that we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. What are the implications? And we're going to go over two real briefly. There are two. That one is there is one way of righteousness. And two, there is one family of righteousness. One way, the way of faith, not works, and one family made up, and this was radical in this day, made up of Jews and Gentiles. Radical because they didn't care for one another. These were people you would not normally hang out or see together, and God's making them into one family. Let's look first by looking at verses 27 and 28, and that there is one way. So Paul says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works. No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I ended last week's message, and again, if you weren't here, it's fine. I'm going to bring you up to speed with another illustration. I said, what happens when we are set free, what Romans talks about under the word redemption or redeemed by the blood of Christ. And we talked about how we went from, the illustration was we went from living in a prison where we were in slavery to our sins, we were in bondage, and we were brought in as God's sons and daughters to the palace, brought to God's homes with all the rights, all the privileges, all the joys, all the belong, everything that God has, he gives to you. He says, now we love that idea of going from the prison to the palace, of having a great home, a spacious, wonderful home. But there's one thing that we have to recognize as sort of natural, kind of a default mode for all of us. And that is we want to earn it ourselves. We want to prove our own worth. We want to build our own home. 
We all want to vindicate ourselves and prove our own worth. That's why we're concerned what other people think of us. That's why we're concerned about our image when we walk into a room. That's why we're concerned. Yes, it's mixed with, do we genuinely want to do a good job? Do we genuinely love our family? Yes. But all these things also, why do we get so devastated when we're criticized or rejected? Why do we get so devastated when a child rebels or goes astray, because we're basing our self-worth, our identity, to some degree, on those things. We use these things to build our own identity. You know how it goes? Kind of by the sweat of our brow, making something of ourselves. And you know why this is inherent to our nature? It gives us a ground of boasting. I don't mean bragging, it doesn't mean we shout it out in the street, but we're basing our identity and our worth on something other than Jesus Christ. Maybe we don't go out like Muhammad Ali and say, I am the greatest. But it's built into our own life to say, I've made it, I am somebody. It's even built into our music. The song, New York, New York, if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. It's up to you, New York, New York. Let's face it, we are all boasters. We want to make it on our own. We don't want to say, I'm insufficient. I'm not good enough. I'm inadequate. But friends, if we embrace the adequacy and the sufficiency of Christ, that is exactly what we must do. Paul says, so what becomes of our boasting? He says, it is excluded. It is ruled out. Here's the truth. You are insufficient. You are inadequate. And here's the truth. Christ is sufficient. And Christ is adequate. And that's where in our daily lives it kind of butts heads and rubs us the wrong way. How many of us enjoy hearing you are insufficient? Do you think I got enjoyed getting up this morning and my prayers began, well, okay, Lord, you've called me to preach twice today. I'm not up to the task. That's kind of where I have to begin the day. I'm not sufficient. You have to begin there practically so that you can then claim and appropriate and live out of the sufficiency of Christ. One of my favorite preachers, and I love to read him now, is a man by the name of David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was an English preacher of the last century. And in his book, Spiritual Depression, he put it this way. He says, so often people say, I don't feel like I'm good enough yet. And at once, once they say that, I know that I've been wasting my breath in talking to them. Why? Because they are still thinking in terms of themselves. According to this text, they're boasting. Boasting has not yet been excluded. They have to do it. It may sound very modest. They may think they're being humble. Sounds very modest to say, well, I don't think I'm good enough. But Lloyd-Jones writes, it's a very denial of the faith. The very essence of the Christian faith is to say that he is good enough and I am in him. As long as you go on thinking about yourself like that and saying, I'm not good enough, oh, I'm not good enough, you are denying God, you are denying the gospel, you are denying the very essence of the faith and you will never be happy. See, the gospel of grace is that Jesus is good enough and you are in him and the implication of that is that it excludes, it eliminates all boasting. See, boasting is ruled out or excluded because our right status and our standing with God is based solely on the work of Christ. We don't claim any credit. 
We can't claim our own achievements. We don't claim our own background. We don't claim our own heritage. That is why Jesus says if anyone wants to follow him, listen, this is Jesus' evangelism, by the way, and notice he doesn't say, pray to receive me into your heart. If anyone wants to follow me, you must deny yourself. You know what that means? Give up thinking about yourself. It's not about you. Divorce yourself from yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. See, how can a dead person boast? See, and what does he mean with the next set of questions when he says, by a law of works and a law of faith? You know, he asks, what does it do about boasting? It eliminates it. He says, by a law of works? No, by a law of faith. What does he mean by that? Many think this is a reference to the Mosaic law, but the most conservative scholars believe that Paul here is engaging in a sort of play on words where law, either of works or faith, is being used as a principle or a system, much like he will use it in Romans chapter 7, which we'll get to in months from now, where he talks about the principle of the law. And what he's saying is, so in other words, you can live your life based on a rule or a system of law and thus performance or a rule or a system of faith where you're standing, your identity is based on the performance of Christ. Now, when he's talking about works of the law, he's not talking simply about legalism. He's not talking about, see, there are very few of us. Which of us really walk around saying, yes, I'm going to be saved by my effort. I'm going to be saved by my works. See, we don't walk around saying that. We're not that legalistic. But we do live our lives where we base our identity, meaning we are trying to constantly prove ourselves, our value, our worth, by how we're doing. When we're doing that, we're based on what Paul calls here by a law of works. And we need to recognize one brings bondage and the other system brings freedom. And every moment, every moment, you're living out of one system or the other. And he's saying the righteousness of Christ eliminates the system of performance, the system of self-effort, the system of law. And verse 28 expands and explains exactly why. Because verse 28 begins with the word for, which means he's explaining verse 27. He says, for we hold, here's our position, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Do you see Paul's logic here? It's impeccable. He's saying boasting is eliminated and we live on the system of faith because justification, basically the ultimate life affirmation, Justification, the declaration of God that you are not guilty, non-condemnable, and your status is that of righteous. Because of the verdict that we are in the right by faith and not by the system of works. There's no ground for boasting and we live under the system of faith. I love how one author put this just as an application to this. He said, we need to learn to define ourselves radically as one beloved by God. He says, this is the true self. Every other identity is simply an illusion. Let me say that again. 
Define yourself radically as one beloved by God. Define yourself radically as justified. This is the true self. You will only find your true self as it's defined by the performance of Christ. Every other identity. Now think about that. All the other projections we put forward, our identities as moms and dads, grandmoms and granddads, workers, sons, daughters, friends, Americans, you name the identity, every other identity we put forward is merely an illusion. There is one way of righteousness. And this leads us to the second point. The second implication, if you will, because we hold, this is what Paul is saying, he's telling the church at Rome, you want to know what I stand for? You know what I, want to know what our position? We hold that one is justified by faith apart from law. And he says, as a result, there's one family. Because he goes on, if you look at the remainder of the text, he says, there is God, the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? says, yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? He says, do we, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? He says, absolutely not, by no means. Rather, on the contrary, we are upholding the law. Now look at what Paul is doing here. He's drawing from the reality of our salvation, and he's drawing out implications for church life. He's saying because of the reality of justification by faith, there are certain implications. One is your identity is in Christ. Two is you're one family, no matter how different you are. Am I the God of Jews only? He says, absolutely not. I'm the God of Gentiles only. Imagine being a first century Jewish person and listening to that. You're probably ready to throw tomatoes at Paul. He's saying the fact that we're justified by faith, that our right standing is a gift of God, excluding all performance and boasting, means that the one God has one covenant family brought into membership on the same basis, on equal footing. And what he's doing here is he's bringing together two Old Testament passages in order to make his implication. The first one is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which was known by the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for to hear. And it was the center of Israelite life. Where Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That God is one God, the Lord the only God. And then Zechariah 14, verse 9. When he's talking about the day of the Lord, which Paul is saying has been begun, has been inaugurated by Christ, it says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. See, do we understand the significance of this and how this applies to us? The significance of God being the God of the Gentiles as well of the Jews and on the same basis. What this meant for them, as one writer put it, it was that Jews and Gentiles belong equally and on the same basis equal footing. Let's apply this to ourselves. For This has absolutely huge implications. See, do you recognize what this means for us? This means if there's no superiority of Jews over Gentiles, that means there's no superiority in the body of Christ. We're all one. There's no greater members and lesser members. There's no more worthwhile members 
and lesser members. We are on equal standing, equal footing in Christ. All are included on the same basis. Barriers are torn down. Unity is based on Christ. Identity in Christ supersedes all other sources of identity, whether it's race, nationality, country, uh, gender, anything else. You are a Christian first. Your identity is in Christ. Remember still our context. This is the context of eliminating all boasting. The one God is the God of both Jews and Gentiles. We are all members of the same family through faith in Jesus Christ. Equal standing in Christ. What else does it mean? Think of the implications. Not only do we have equal standing in Christ, but as one theologian put it, he wrote, whatever it means to be a Christian, it at least involves the discovery of friends you did not know you had. And as another writer put it, he says, those friends are going to shock you. You're going to find yourself loving people who are very different from you. That's why the church can be tough at times. The church is not an aggregation of people who gather for an event on a Sunday morning and then disperse into the midst of the week. No, the church is a congregation of the committed who are very different from one another, racially, economically, politically, generationally, and nationally. That is what makes the church beautiful. The body of Jesus is made up of all kinds of people from all kinds of places who are learning what it means to love one another. We know this was shocking in the first century. I wonder if we understand how shocking it really is in the 21st century. See, it's easy. Jesus taught about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says it's easy to love people who are just like you. It's easy to love people. He says, end of Matthew 5, he says, what reward does it give you when you love somebody who loves you in return? That's pretty simple to do. Somebody, I'll tell you what, somebody who showers affection and attention on me, guess what? I'm pretty kind to them. I love them. It's a little bit more difficult when they're different from me. It's a little bit more difficult when they don't think like me, when they don't have the same views or the same opinions or the same thoughts. Is God the God of the Jews only or is he God of the Gentiles? Do you know how radical that is? That Paul is saying we are one family based on Christ, not based on anything else. And that we need to learn what it's like to love different people. That barriers have have been broken down. That Jesus is saying not only is there one way of righteousness, there is one covenant family. We need to feel the shock value of that and commit ourselves to learning what is it like to be a family of love. Of loving people who are different from you. Of accepting people who are different from you, but are united in Christ. See, this is not just shocking, but it's countercultural. Can you imagine what kind of a witness it would be to people who out in the world would never hang out together, never be friends, are all over the map in all sorts of areas, but if you bring them together into the one family of God, founded on and based on and an equal footing, in Christ. This is part of the good news. Become one family of the King. Friends, that is good news, and that's hope, and that can be a witness 
to the world. Let's pray. Father, help us to learn and understand the various implications. There are so many to this great doctrine of justification by faith. Paul just taught us two of them. The fact that the only basis or system or principle for us to live on is the principle of faith, that our identity, our worth, our value is based on Christ, not a law of works, not a law of performance. And because there's one way of righteousness, we're all on equal footing and there's one family of God. Help us to practice these things. Holy Spirit, we need you. We do pray that you would transform us by your word. In Jesus' name, amen.